This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by Michael Hyatt and Company's new book, Your World Class Assistant. Find out more at lead2.win slash assistant. Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt. And I'm Megan Hyatt Miller. And this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast to help you win at work and succeed at life. And in this episode, we're talking about a problem a lot of leaders face and you probably face. They know they work too much, but they just can't stop. Man, we hear this all the time from our business accelerator clients when they're just uh, joining the program. Very often they are working way too many hours and they just don't know how to stop doing it. Right. And I've been in that same situation myself. Right. And, you know, they're telling themselves things like, you know, I'm in a busy season right now, but it'll back off soon. Or I need to uh, hustle and earn more because of my income needs. Or it doesn't really matter because I love my business or I love my job. That one I hear a lot. Uh, I've tried to slow down, but, you know, something always um, urgent comes up. And, you know, after all, I'm the boss and or I'm the business owner and and they're working on Saturdays to just catch up. Right. You know, that's the only time they have to do real work. So this is a struggle. It is a struggle. And we've got Larry Wilson with us to guide us through this process. Hey Larry. So, Larry, welcome. Hey guys. So I have this study that I found on average hours worked by CEOs. Well, it's interesting. And the way they presented the results were interesting too, because it shows kind of the ways we lie to ourselves about how much mm-hmm. we work. The average CEO spends 9.7 hours per weekday at work. So it's Monday to Friday, almost 10 hours. Now, a lot of people would say, you know, it's just under 50 hours. Doesn't sound like it's it's totally out of control. Doesn't sound, yeah, that bad. 48.5 hours per week. But here's the kicker. They also worked 79% of weekend days at an average of 3.9 hours. And 70% of vacation days mm-hmm. were an average of 2.4 hours. So you add that all together, that's an average of 62 and a half hours per week. And they're not reporting on how much time people are working at night or in the morning before they go to the office, right? This is just like the, that nine hours was like the time they spent at the office. I don't have that data. Because what we My see- My guess is that's the case. Yeah. What we see a lot of is that, you know, those hours at the workday are okay. But what's happening is people are doing their email before they go to work and they're coming home and they're working on projects in the evening. And it's a lot of hours. Well, we know for a fact that a lot of people, the last thing they do while they're in bed is check email. Mm-hmm. First thing they get, they do when they get up before they get out of bed is check email. So a couple of days ago, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasters, a friend, in fact, admit that he hadn't taken a vacation in over a year. So he was admitting on this podcast episode that he was on the edge of, of burnout, and he publicly said, this has got to change. Now, I'm thinking to myself, kind of judgmentally, um, why hasn't it changed until now? And how did he get into this kind of situation? And then I kind of remembered my own experience. So I've been there myself, but I was being a little bit like an ex-drunk who struggled to get sober and has forgotten what it's like to be addicted to drinking. So I've been a workaholic in my past. So when Gail and I were first married, we had the benefit of two incomes. It was awesome. It seemed like we had more money than we knew what to do with. We bought a new house. We bought a new car. I bought a new motorcycle, all through the miracle of debt. Hmm. I'm being facetious, but that's how we did it. But everything was fine until we decided to start having children. So then Gail got pregnant and quit her job. Then she decided she wanted to be a full-time mom. So suddenly we went from two incomes to one. And realizing we needed more money, 
I took a higher paying, but a more demanding job that required a lot more hours. And my new boss told me he couldn't meet my salary requirements immediately, but if I did a great job, he'd give me a raise in 90 days. So I was absolutely determined that I was going to get that raise. So I typically arrived at the office at 6 a.m. I made sure I was the first one there. I didn't leave until 6 p.m. Then after a quick dinner, I parked myself on the recliner, went right back to work. And so I'd go to bed about 10 or 10.30 at night, and then the whole thing would start all over again the next day. Now, in addition to that, I typically worked on Saturday mornings. Kind of your point, Larry, about CEOs. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a CEO, but I was working on Saturday mornings. And I wasn't, at this point in my career, an executive, but I wanted to be one. And I noticed that all the executives at our company all came in on Saturday morning because they said, this is the only time we've got to catch up. At least that was more honest back then because you couldn't work from home. If you wanted to really work, you had to go into the office. You know, now you can kind of hide out and work way more than anybody knows. Exactly. But if that wasn't bad enough, I took on an additional job in order to meet our financial obligations. So I became a weekend preacher for a congregation that was 81 miles from my home in Waco, Texas. Oh, my word. And as a result, I spent Saturday evening, early Sunday morning, preparing my sermon. So we would leave the house on Sunday morning at 7 a.m. Then Gail and I would typically have lunch with one of the families after church. By the time we got back home, it was usually 5 p.m. So then did I rest? No, because then it was time to start getting ready for the work week. Oh, my gosh. So it was brutal. I was was working at, at least 80 hours a week, sometimes more of that. But here's the crazy thing. I eventually got used to it. Hmm. And what had been difficult and and challenging became kind of the pattern of my life. It became routine. And, and worse than that, my boss would praise me for my amazing work ethic. And, and so he gave me the raise I needed. I was soon promoted. And so then that took on additional work and it was this kind of endless cycle. And I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of people find themselves in this situation. Mm-hmm. And so I think what we, what we want to talk about in this episode is if you're in that situation where you're living a life of total work and you don't know how to extricate yourself from that because you want to have a work and life, we're going to get some practical tools for doing that. Yeah, I think one of the fallacies that kind of underpins that whole way of living is that people are not owning their agency. You know, they have more control than they think they have, but they're not aware of that or they're maybe in denial of it because it can be just easier to take on more work than it is to have a tough conversation with a client or your boss. Um, It can feel uh, less threatening to overwork than do an honest self-assessment of, you know, am I a workaholic? What's going on here? Um, Or we can procrastinate delegating work that is intimidating to us. So we just, you know, we just like hang on to stuff and try to figure it out when we need to just hand it off, but we don't do that. And I think that sometimes that we'd rather deal with the problems that come from overworking than to kind of do the self-reflection and make the hard changes necessary to free ourselves up. Yeah, these patterns of overwork for me really outlived their utility. In other words, I continued, I persisted in this because it was psychologically giving me something that was important. So long after, you know, I kind of was financially stable, mm-hmm. I was still doing this because it was familiar. A lot of reasons for that. But that's why, that's why we want to talk about these specific strategies. So one of the things that is the most insidious in this whole conversation is that it is easier very often to do the things you need to do in your business and your work than it is to show up at home. You know, for example, when you're at work, you get to check things off your little list. 
You know, you get an attaboy or a way to go from your boss or your clients. It's definable. It's um, something that you have a sense of accomplishment about. A lot of rewards. A lot of rewards. But when you go home, you may have challenges in your marriage. You may have the exhaustion of kids. Um, you may have financial pressure, all kinds of things that are squishy or the rewards are unclear or require a different level of work and kind of emotional intelligence than what your work does. And very often, workaholism is driven by the desire to escape home. I think a lot of us can identify with this pattern of overwork mm -hmm. and how easy it is to slip into. So we're going to talk about the three reasons you can't stop working. And of course, we'll share what to do about that along the way. So here we go. Reason number one, you haven't set boundaries. Yeah, this is really a foundational practice and it's deceptively simple. You know, you think, wait a second, what do you mean? I'm talking about setting hard boundaries about when you're going to work and when you're not going to work. Now, I had a kind of a hard meltdown back in the year 2000, a little, you know, 2000, 2001, when I had turned a division around. And we've all heard the story. I've told you guys and told our audience a lot of times. But I ended up in the emergency room three th times thinking I'm going to have a heart attack. And a cardiologist tells me that you got to make some changes. So I hired an executive coach. It was Daniel Harkavy at Building Champions. And Daniel said to me, I want you to set three boundaries. He said, because... Here's the thing about your job now. He said, you have a lot more responsibility, more responsibility than you've ever had. And if he said, if you're not careful, this is going to be all you do. And he said, I don't want you to lose your health. I don't want you to lose your family. So he encouraged me to set three hard boundaries. And so here's what they were. I decided then I wasn't going to do, uh, do any work after 6 p.m. So my previous practice was that I would drag work into the evenings so either I would leave the office late or I'd go home, you know, wolf down a quick meal with the family. And then I'd get, you know, park myself in the recliner, as I said earlier, whip out my laptop and keep working. Second boundary, don't work on the weekends. That was tough because Saturday was my time to catch up. You know, Sunday afternoon was a time to catch up. You know, there was all this time, which I loved that time for working because it's the time when I could do the work I really enjoyed that I couldn't do during the week because I had so many meetings. Then the third hard boundary was don't work on my vacations. Hmm. Oh, that's tough. It is tough. Because it makes you rethink your work. This is a helpful list if you're not sure if you're a workaholic, you know, maybe you're you're kind of in the fog of it and you're you're wondering if it's out of bounds or not. You can use this criteria to kind of hmm. measure against. And if you're checking these boxes, pretty good, I, you know, there's a pretty good chance that you're um, beyond the normal limits. Yeah. I think everybody who hears those limits, Michael, would say they're pretty common sense. Don't work yourself to death. Don't work all the time. Yet people still don't set boundaries. Mm -hmm. Why is it that people have such a difficult time getting their mind around to do this? Well, I think a part of it goes back to what Megan was saying. You know, there's such huge rewards at work. And when we think about being at home or being with ourselves, you know, it's not clear what we're going to do with ourselves. And, and my friend, by the way, the, the person I talked to at the be beginning of this, he said he suddenly realized as he was dealing with this burnout and he needed more free time, he said, I don't know what to do with myself. He said, I don't have any mm -hmm. hobbies. My work is my hobby. They're one and the same. And, and that can't be the case. That's going to make you less interesting at work. It's going to be, make you less rejuvenated if all your waking time is thinking about work. And something's got to give. You know, we're after the double win here. We talk about this all the time, winning at work and succeeding at life. 
And that requires that you set some boundaries so that you can have that other life. Well, this really goes back to the idea of the secondary gain. So, you know, the obvious primary gain of all those hours you're putting in is, you know, it's what's required to build your business and, you know, gets results and all that kind of stuff. But kind of to my earlier point, there's this insidious thing that's happening where you're getting a secondary gain from these choices that you may not be aware of. So it could be that you want to please people. It could be that you're flattered by having people depend on you. Man, this is a big one for people. It could be that you really enjoy feeling like you can do it all, that you're more productive than everybody you know, and you are proud of it, um, that you're unaware of the toll that your work is taking on your family and others. You know, you may tell yourself, well, I'm really doing it for my family, but really you're doing it at their expense. Yeah. And it may be that you just are really uncomfortable saying no. And when you work too much, it it keeps you from having to have conflict with people in your workplace or what you would perceive as conflict. That's a very good point. You know, I just want to make a quick argument before we leave this point for the value of constraint. And I think that the value of setting these boundaries is it forces us to make choices about our, our priorities. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is think about how productive you are on the Friday before you leave on vacation. You have a hard boundary. You're flying out the next morning. You're going to be on a vacation with your family. You've decided you're not going to take any work with you. How productive are you on that Friday? I mean, you're crazy. It's like a week's worth of work in you know one day. Totally. You 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 don't allow yourself to get distracted. You don't have meaningless conversations. You don't get caught up in Facebook because you got to get the work done. Well, when you put these hard boundaries on your workday, if I know that I can't drag the work into the evening because 6 p.m. is when I stop, guess what? I get my work done by 6 p.m. Same thing when I've decided I'm not going to take the work into the weekends. So these hard boundaries could be our friends. Constraints could actually enable us to give us the freedom we want and to be more productive and more focused at work. They really force clarity. Um, in my own experience, you know, eight years ago, we adopted uh, two boys from Uganda. So that's our third and fourth children. And when they came home, they had special needs that we were previously unaware of, some medical, some neurological. Mm-hmm. It was it was very significant. And I realized quickly that if I was going to continue working and continue growing in my career, the only way that was possible with their needs was I was going to have to set some hard boundaries because they really needed me. It was very intense parenting was going to be necessary for years to come. And I decided uh, not too long after that, that I was going to put a cutoff on my day where I was going to finish when my kids were done with school. So I would finish. um, It's kind of evolved a little bit as their school schedules have changed, but now it's three 30 is when they're done. And, and I'm done with work almost, you know, probably 95% of my days I'm finished at that point. And that's become a hard boundary for me. What's what that has forced is a greater level of clarity about where I add the most value to the business, what I need to say yes to and what I need to say no to. And I think I've become more effective and more productive as a result of that constraint than I ever was before. So how many hours would you estimate that you work per week? Probably about 35. Okay. So here's the crazy thing. You're the COO of our company. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I'm counting on you to basically run the business. Right. And as the CEO, you're spending about 35 hours Mm -hmm. a week. And nobody would know that you're not working full time because you are so productive, so focused. But I would argue that it's those very constraints that are forcing that. I think so, too. Absolutely. Hey, everybody. Mike Boyer here. Did you know that Michael and Megan love reading your reactions to Lead to Win on iTunes? If you haven't left a review yet, would you do that right now? That also keeps the show visible to others. If you need help with that, click on the tutorial in the show notes at lead2.win. Thank you. And if you're not following Michael and Megan on Instagram, you're missing some good added content. 
You'll love their posts and stories, and they do post themselves and read your comments. Find them at Michael Hyatt and at Megan Hyatt Miller, or check the links from the show notes at lead2.win. Thanks for listening today. Now, back to the show. Well, Megan, you take us to reason two that you work too much is because you haven't taken that hard look at what you do all day, and you haven't called your calendar and your task list. That's so true. I had to do this again now that I have a new baby. So now my life looks different than it did six months ago. And I've had to revisit my calendar, my task list, the things that I'm responsible for, what I'm delegating. I mean, really, it goes back to the concept um, of the freedom compass that we often talk about in the show. Um, this is, by the way, if you want to know more, you can go to chapter two in my dad's book, Free to Focus. It, it's explained in detail there. But the basic idea is that it shows you what to keep and what to cut and where you're going to drive the most value for your organization, which is at the end of the day, if you're thinking, my boss would never let me do this, the the crux of it is, you know, are you adding value? That's what your boss wants. Are you adding value in the ways that you've been hired to do? Um, or if you have your own business, you know, and, the, and so with the Freedom Compass, there's kind of two axes in this two by two matrix. There's passion and proficiency. And adding value is really the proficiency part. The passion part is the other component of that. You know, do you love uh, these activities. And so those are two questions that I'm asking myself. Am I proficient? And am I passionate about this? And those are the things I want to give the majority of my time to. And it's it's the filter that I use for calling my calendar and my task list and everything that doesn't fit into what we call the desire zone, that area of your greatest passion and proficiency is a candidate for elimination, automation, or delegation. And that's really what I've done to get where I, I am. Well, and why this is so important is that we only have 168 hours in the week. And time is unlike every other resource. You can't earn more of it. You can't make more of it. And you can't just keep adding stuff into your calendar. you got to periodically prune. And that's that's a key word. I've just gone through the same process myself. Me too, yeah. So we had a huge strategic opportunity this fall for our business that was going to require my personal involvement. And so we had to go in with a machete to my calendar and start whacking out a bunch of stuff that at one time made a lot of sense, but now at this stage in our company doesn't make as much sense, but we had to free me up because I just can't add more time. You know, I'm not willing to compromise my evenings, not willing to compromise my uh, weekends or my vacations. I've got those hard boundaries in place. So that by necessity requires pruning. And I think every leader has to periodically do this just to go in and prune and say, okay, that meeting made sense at one time, but does it still make sense? Or does my involvement in it still make sense? Or I used to be doing these kinds of tasks, but am I still going to be required to do these kinds of tasks? And and I find that people, especially when they get a promotion, I saw, I saw this in, in the corporate world when I was running a big corporation, the biggest threat people have to their success is they don't let go of the old job. They keep doing the old work and they add some new stuff to it. And that's not going to work. They got to give up stuff. They got to prune if they're going to be successful, if they're going to experience uh, you know, the fullness of the fruit of that new position. So if if I'm working like the average CEO, 62 and a half hours per week, the real question is, how many of the things I'm doing during those hours are actually driving results? Yes. Well, and the more successful you become, the more the things you're choosing between are great and very best. You know, there's, no, there's not anything that's just low level or, right. you know, or not good. I mean, you're really choosing between... 
you know, what's good and the very, very best. And it makes the choices harder. And that's why you have to look at it carefully and regularly, or you'll just keep it all on there because it all sounds great. Yep. Reason number one that you can't stop working, you haven't set hard boundaries. Reason number two, you haven't culled your calendar and your task list. And the third reason, you haven't cultivated other interests. You know, our brains and bodies are not designed for constant work. We need breaks. We do. You know, we kids have recess at school. Grownups need breaks in order to be productive. We need an intentional rhythm of work and rest to be our best at work and at home. Um, and in other words, I mean, you need to play. You do. I, this is hard. This is hard for me. I think this is hard for you. This has been like learned. It's like as adults, we have to relearn how to play, but it's so rejuvenating and it's really the antidote to burnout. It'll make us more interesting at work. It'll enable our brains to recuperate. And it's just essential for a sense of well-being. Mm -hmm. But it's this other interest idea. And so few adults have cultivated other interests. And the lack of other interests is the reason that so many people say to us, you know, when they join our coaching program, for example, my work is my hobby, you know, and they say it like they're proud of it. And we're right. like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> um, and when they schedule time off, they find themselves drifting into work. Yes. Um, so... It's kind of like you have to actually book time on your calendar for your other interests, particularly if you struggle with this, if you're a high achiever. I also think this is even harder for people, like the the compulsion to drift back into work. If you are an empty nester, if you're single, you don't have kids, you know, any of those things where like you just have a lot of time on your hands if you're not working and you're at home, that that can be really unsettling for people. Danger zone. Danger zone. Michael, we've heard you talk on this podcast about uh, a couple of your hobbies, uh, fly fishing and playing the Native American flute. But we know what they are. Give us a sense of what those hobbies give you. They draw on my creativity in a way that I don't get to express at work often, especially the flute playing. You know, and, and one of the things I, I thought there is, how can I take this to the next level? So I hired a, a flute instructor a uh, guy that I meet with uh, every week or every other week. And I do it all by video, by the way, which is really interesting. And he's an amazing instructor, but it's really taken it to the next level where I really enjoy it. Same thing has happened with fly fishing. You know, I it, it's something that I took up maybe 15 or 20 years ago, but I didn't really pursue it in earnest till a few years ago. And so when Gail and I were in Wyoming this summer, we spent two weeks in Wyoming, I made sure so I didn't drift back into work because that's easy for me to do even at this stage. And so I booked a guide to take us fly fishing six days. And so that's a lot was, of fishing. That's a lot of fishing. <laughs> and it was incredible. And Gail got into it and loved it. I'd just like to point out too that I, I don't often hear people say about their hobbies, how can I take this to the next level? <laughs> so that's, you, you might be a high achiever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's more enjoyment and it, I mean it's intellectual stimulation. And all of that. And I think it gives me something to talk about beyond my work. Well, Megan, I don't think we have a real sense of what your hobbies are other than uh, raising children. Yeah, that, that <laughs> takes up a lot of time. And and that's a great point. I mean, I'm in a very different season of life. You know, I am excited for being an empty nester, which I have just committed to another 18 years of parenting. So it's going to be a while. <laughs> you're um, you're, you're going to absolutely love it. I know. That's what I hear. I, I really am excited. So my time for hobbies is much more limited. Um, however, one of the things that I love the most is cooking. You know, as I um, have shared before, I don't necessarily cook during the week, but on the weekends, I love to cook, you know, and I love to cook by myself with music, 
with some wine, with the new recipe that I haven't tried before, you know, probably a solo trip to Whole Foods at some point in there, something fun. It's very creative for me and restorative. And I think the reason for that in part is because I'm doing something with my hands. Um, it's very tactile. Um, it's kind of a sensory rich experience. And that's different from my day to day work. So I love that. Um, we did also- a little fly fishing. I, I love to fish. I mean, when I'm an empty nester or when my kids are all older, I'll be doing that all the time. But definitely on vacations, uh, fly fishing and fishing in general is something I love. Um, we're a part of a small group at church, which I enjoy. And so it's just kind of regular stuff. You know, it's not um, elaborate hobbies as, as during this season, but it's really important to find that time. What are your hobbies, Larry? My hobbies have changed a little bit um, over the years. I kind of a serial hobbyist, which I think I got that term from you, Michael. But My dad was that, yeah. Yeah, I've kind of done that. Um, I've been learning French lately. So mm-hmm. kind of uh-huh. you just use your brain in a different way. And I found out you use your, your mouth and your throat and your nose <laughs> in a different way. The whole thing, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I've recently taken an interest, thanks to Nick, our producer, in some, this will sound kind of dopey, but pencils. <laughs> I found pencils. out. Pencils. I mean, these are not yeah. like grocery store number two kid pencils. Oh, no. These are Palomino black wing pencils. They come in various hardnesses and styles. And Who even knew? Well, what this shows is that no matter what your thing is. There's a thing. There's a thing. There's, there's a like, thing. A, there's like yeah. an industry to support it. Yeah. Yeah. And so just over the years, I find something that's interesting and learn about it, pursue it. And then I move on to something else. That's why I like you. I I think one of the big reasons that people don't pursue hobbies is they have this limiting belief, like, you know, I'm not good at music or I didn't grow up with a dad that taught me how to fish or whatever. This is the incredible thing about coaching. Somebody somewhere in the world knows what you want to do. Like I'm thinking to myself, I want to take my flute playing to the next level. And so I got on the internet this summer and I started saying, there's got to be people to teach this, right? And I found these amazing instructors. And I've got a guy that I, I that I can do it with over Zoom. And, you know, I didn't know anything about playing a Native American flute. I mean, it's, it's, as it turns out, it's not that hard to get some sound out of it. But, you know, I'm paying him like $25 a lesson. And that exists for everything. I don't I care mean, if it's... I mean, really everything. Everything. I don't care if it's, it, it's photography. If it's fishing, that's one of the reasons I go with guides. I mean, I can fish by myself now, but it's so much more enjoyable with guides. Soccer... Any kind of musical instrument, wine tasting, is. crafting, wine t- oh. cooking, travel, languages. I mean, the list goes on. It does. I, I think too a hurdle that people have to get over is, especially for high achievers, this idea of going back to being a beginner. Mm, that's one of the best things about doing it. something yes. that you're no good at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that you know we've heard it say before. I think it's actually even a Buddhist saying, but you know, cultivating or developing a beginner's mind. Mm. I think it's so important. I think it's really important in business. And I think that's one of the things that we could bring to our business is when we're working on a hobby and we're having to start at the very beginning and, and experience again what it means to learn something for the first time. It, it brings a mindset to our business that's very helpful. Well, today we've learned that you and you alone are responsible for how much you work. Though you may think you have no choice, the real reasons you can't stop working really boil down to three. You haven't set boundaries, you haven't culled your calendar or to-do list, and you haven't developed other interests. And the good news, of course, is that you are the one who can change every single one of those. That's right. Final thoughts today? 
If you really want to see your life change and you want to have a sense of kind of full orbed success, you know, not just that you're uh, winning at work with your business, but that you're actually succeeding in your whole life. The strategies that we've shared today, I think, are really the secret to that. And if you will apply yourself to these things, the life you will have six months from now, a year from now will be so much better, so much richer, um, so much more satisfying than what you're experiencing today. I know this is said often, but you know nobody gets to the end of their life and regrets that they didn't spend more time at work. And the things that we're talking about today are the things that are going to make your life, uh, in retrospect, be rich and and satisfying. And I want to get to the end of my days and look back and and think to myself, I wished I'd spent more time fishing or I wished I'd spent because because those are the things that really give texture to life. And yeah, my work's important, but I spend plenty of time at work. You know, the things I need to cultivate are outside of work and these relationships I have with people doing these things are so important. So yeah, I think you gotta you gotta look at uh start with the end in mind and where do you want to end up in your life? Well, for some high achievers, this may have been a hard message to hear today, but certainly is going to be a liberating truth if we take it and apply it. So thank you very much. Thanks, Larry. And thank you guys for joining us today. We invite you to join us next week for a new episode. Until then, lead to win. This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by Michael Hyatt & Company's new book, Your World-Class Assistant. Find out more at lead2.win slash assistant.